It's now estimated that almost 800 soldiers and rebels and an unknown number of civilians have been killed in El Salvador since the weekend. There's been a call for an end to the fighting between the government of President Cristiani and the National Liberation Front. It was made by the Inter-American Human Rights Commission after six Jesuit priests and two women were killed at a university in the capital, San Salvador. The army is being blamed for the killings and the government has promised an inquiry. And at home, Finagrel and Labour have asked the government to promote international action to stop the fighting. 2 a.m. November the 16th, 1989, two years ago last week. Six Jesuits, their cook and her daughter, cruelly murdered in the priest's house in the grounds of the Jesuit University in San Salvador. Their names, Ignacio Eucuria, Ignacio Martin Barro, Secunda Montes, Amanda Lopez, Juan Ramon Moreno, Joaquin Lopez E. Lopez, the cook Julia Elba and her 15-year-old daughter, Selena Ramos. Sister Jean Ryan was one of the first on the scene. We heard there was a mass for the Jesuits on the Friday morning, the next morning. So we all decided that we'd Take risk it. Mm. So we made a big white flag, and with all flags flying from the trees as well above the house so that uh, the helicopters wouldn't shoot down on the population. Um, but we, we took a big flag out with us into the minibus and the city was very deserted. There were a few cars circulating, a few private cars. There were no buses, no taxis, nothing with, uh, like, lorries or mm. goods on, just a few private cars w that had come out. And we got to the Uka, and the bodies had been removed, but we could still see a lot of blood, a lot of the part of the brains of, the, of these good men. And, and even part of the skull, which I was going to pick up, and I didn't. I thought, oh, God, no, I haven't the courage to do it, and I left it there. When I came back, it was gone. Somebody else had seen it, but there was a big square, flat piece of bone there on the, on the lawn, and you could see where they had dragged one of the Jesuits, the, the marks of the blood, back into the room and dumped it into John Sobrino's bedroom. The murder of the Jesuits and the two Salvadorian women must be seen against the background of the largest rebel offensive in the country's 10-year civil war. Throughout the mid-80s, the civilian leaders and the military became alarmed at the gains which were being made by the rebels in the capital, San Salvador. For many months, a rebel offensive was expected, but when it finally came, the intensity and military skill took many by surprise. The government's response, however, was equally intense and ferocious and expected. This is the story of the progress of that 11-day attack and counter-attack, seen through the eyes of three religious, living at the heart of the conflict in the city of San Salvador. Sister Jean Ryan, Father Jim McPolan and Father Peter O'Neill, who remembers the moment when the countdown stopped and the fighting began, fighting which culminated in the murder of the Jesuits. For us... I suppose it started really uh, on that Saturday night. We had uh, got heard rumours that the offensive was about to start, although there had been so many rumours that we didn't really give all that much credence to them. Uh, we were told that if it did start, it could start maybe about uh, 7 o'clock at night, and I could have almost set my watch to uh, the time when the shooting started in Soyapango. In fact, it started right outside our window and it was almost on the stroke of seven. I, I think you could maybe could talk about the offensive in two uh, distinct ways. There was the very, very intense occupation of the city 
by the guerrillas, which lasted uh, for about 10 or 11 days. That, that was what started that Saturday night and continued uh, till after the funeral of the Jesuits. So that was the time when the guerrillas were actually uh, physically present all the time in, uh, in these parts of the city, in quite uh, a large area of the city. Then you could talk about a second time when the guerrillas were still quite near the city and were moving in and were uh, attacking specific targets uh, of the city, staying in, in these places maybe for one or two or three days and then uh, moving out again. So there, was, there, was, there were two separate uh, times and two separate strategies by the guerrillas. Was the bombardment and the military offensive, uh, was it intense as you experienced it? Well, I've experienced a lot of attacks and uh, a lot of situations where we were actually uh, inside the house and we couldn't uh, move out because of the fighting. I must admit that this was the most frightening time for me, uh, especially on the night when the Jesuits uh, were killed because the bombardment was very, very intense in Soyapango and we could actually watch uh, from uh, our house, we could see uh, the bombs uh, falling, we could see the, the aeroplanes coming over and we could also see especially the rockets being fired because um, they, 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 they were very, very luminous and also of course the noise of the exploding rocket was very, very, uh, very loud. So, and it would go on for maybe two hours at a time, non-stop. So, uh, uh, the bombardment part of it probably was the most frightening uh, part of it and it was what made uh, this, uh, this uh, period of fighting different from other ones that, that I'd experienced. For example, uh, the, 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 the bombs, uh, the, the, the rockets, it's almost as if their sound, their, their, their physical sound, um, the physical violence that, that, that they produced, the whole destruction that they produced, it's almost an image of the whole war uh, in El Salvador. Uh, several people were injured when uh, bombs or fragments of bombs actually fell um, on, on their house. And in, in one instance, um, Father Jerry uh, had to uh, get out of the house and actually physically crawl on his knees to uh, to actually pass the area where the fighting was taking place and get down to help uh, the injured people. That kind of a situation uh, was happening in, in a lot of different places. I can remember during that week visiting one house where an old man had, um, had been killed. He took shelter uh, behind the fridge in his house and he thought he would be able to escape the fighting. And unfortunately, some of the stray bullets uh, came along and hit him, hit him uh, through the refrigerator and, and killed him. So there were a lot of civilian casualties. Some parishioners died. A lot of people who were coming from work, from, uh, from, from jobs in the centre of the city were, were caught in uh, the crossfire in those first moments of the offensive. Also, quite a few people were injured. For example, one 18-year-old catechist, a girl from our area, just in the first few moments of the offensive, um, the, the, the planes came over and they fired down uh, into the areas where they thought that, that the, the, the guerrillas were. So she was shot uh, through the leg. Her family immediately managed to evacuate her from the area her, and her leg had to be amputated. But I would like to explain that even in the area of Soyapango, uh, the fighting 
could be intense in one area and not quite intense in another. And that led to the fact that Father Kiron, who was uh, in, in a different area of Sayapango, in the first few days, uh, there wasn't really very much fighting in his area. In fact, about the middle of the, offen the offensive, the fighting moved right into his area, and he had to make the choice uh, as to whether he would actually stay in the area or get out. And he and um, Father Patricio, who was a North American Franciscan uh, working in the area, decided that since, the, since all the people couldn't get out, they wouldn't move either. So they, they took shelter in the church and spent um, uh, about uh, five days actually trapped in the, in the church while the fighting went on around them. I saw the roof of the church afterwards and it was literally uh, covered with um, bullet holes. Uh, I saw the place where three hand grenades had been thrown into the church um, during that fighting. And in fact, uh, they, they had taken shelter up near the, the, the main door of the church and the, the hand grenades had fallen towards the centre of the church. Yet they were completely out of communication. They had little uh, food uh, or water. They actually opened the door of the church to try to... Um, to get out at one stage and they were greeted by a hail of bullets so they just had to close the doors and stay inside. And in fact I remember that even at the time when we got out we managed to get out on the day that uh, the, the, the Jesuits were buried and we were actually, I was actually able to be present at the funeral mass of the Jesuits. At that time there was still no news of either Father Kieran or Father Patricio. Uh, it was terrifying and emotional during that whole week and there, there were particular times when perhaps uh, it was even more difficult. For example, at one stage the people came in and said that uh, I was actually being looked for by the military. It was the same day that um, the, the Jesuits were killed and the people gave us advice and told us not to stay anymore uh, in the house as it was too dangerous. So each night uh, we would go to the house of one of our parishioners and I'm very thankful to our parishioners uh, to have stood by us during the, that very difficult time. Yes, very frightening moments, uh, very terrifying moments, uh, but also there was a great sense of solidarity among the people in the area. For example, especially those working in the Christian community. They were more concerned about helping the people who needed help. For example, uh, people in the actual area buried the, the 28 uh, guerrillas who were shot during the offensive. Now, this was in your area, was it? In our area. Um, the people told me afterwards that uh, these guerrillas uh, were obviously from the country. They weren't uh, from the city, and they didn't even know uh, in what area they were. They began to ask the people, were they actually in a completely different area? So obviously uh, it was their first time in the city. They were confused, they were disorientated, and um, uh, I, I think most of that group was actually killed uh, in the fighting. So the people went out and actually uh, buried them in a, a, a communal grave themselves. What about things like radio and television? Was there a lot of propaganda? The amount of propaganda was absolutely amazing. It was just uh, a series of attacks on uh, Archbishop Rivera, the Archbishop of San Salvador, uh, on the Jesuits, on trade union leaders, on anybody who um, could be uh, in some way, in some vague way, accused of uh, 
being involved in, in this whole situation. And obviously, when you attack the Archbishop, when you uh, attack the, the, the Jesuits, who are actually working for peace and for dialogue, um, it's, ju it's just simply propaganda, but very, very frightening propaganda with a lot of innuendo and insinuating, in fact, that people responsible for this situation should be punished and should be killed. But in a way, th that whole offensive culminated, you could say, almost with the murder of the Jesuits. And you were listening to all that information say, a few days before it happened, even though you weren't aware of the murders uh, being in Sayapongo and cut off at that point in time. Yes, we were listening to all this uh, propaganda and we were trying to glean some kind of information about what was going on in the whole city, because obviously being in, in one small sector, uh, you don't have any global picture. You don't know what's going on outside. You don't even know if people are aware of your situation or not. So we, yes, we were listening to every scrap of information that uh, that we could get. And um, on the, the the day of the uh, that the Jesuits were killed on the mo that morning, we actually weren't aware that they had been killed until somebody came in who had managed to listen to the rebel radio, which of course uh, was broadcasting at the time, and they announced uh, that the Jesuits w were killed. At the beginning, uh, we were absolutely stupefied. We didn't really believe that it was true. Then we thought maybe the number might be exaggerated. Maybe it would be that one of the Jesuits had been had been killed. So it was only little by little that we realised that the extent um, of uh, the killing, and it wasn't until quite later we realised that the horrifying circumstances in which they were killed. Did the offensive mean something different to the poor and to the wealthy? Well, uh, that part of the offensive certainly meant something uh, different to the poor and to the wealthy. Uh, during those uh, eight days of very, very uh, intense uh, fighting, the poor had to live. They didn't have water. They didn't have food. Um, they didn't. They didn't have anything. And whatever little thing they, they had, they were trying to share uh, with with one another. And obviously, they were afraid that at any moment there would be a bombardment and they they, they might die. Uh, so th those eight days were very very uh, very difficult and very powerful for the poor people. Also, they didn't know uh, what to do. Um, they had this uh, uncertainty about um, uh, what would be, be, be best for them in their situation. Many of them had to think of relatives who were outside the area and they had uh, no news of them. Now, the, the rich areas, or let's say the richer areas uh, of the city at that time were relatively um, unscathed. There wasn't, uh, there wasn't very much happening uh, at that time. But later on, uh, the guerrillas actually occupied some of the richer areas. And I think that um, it must have been quite uh, a chilling experience for the richer people to suddenly realize that this thing could also uh, happen, happen to themselves. And hopefully, um, those of them who, who, who don't want to change in El Salvador, hopefully uh, it gave them a little uh, time for reflection to think uh, over their own position.
más inocente si esperaba. Away from the fighting, contemporary Salvadorian music sang of the need for clothes and shelter for the refugees for the betterment of society. But the offensive continued to make international news headlines. There has been renewed heavy fighting in San Salvador, capital of El Salvador. Left-wing guerrillas have taken over part of the luxury Sheraton Hotel. Reports say they're holding about 20 people hostage. The rebels claim to have captured four United States military advisors. Among the guests staying at the hotel is the Secretary General of the Organization of American States, Mr. Suarez, who's there on a peace mission. For 11 days, the army strafed the poor neighbourhoods of Sayapongo, where Franciscan father Peter O'Neill lives, also Zacamil and San Antonio Bad, where the rebels found their strongest support. During that time, hundreds of Salvadorians were killed and thousands were made homeless. St. Clair, Sister Jean Ryan, lives in San Antonio Bad, across the city from Peter O'Neill. Well, we got rumours that it was going to start on Saturday night at 6 o'clock. So we all stayed, we were sure to, that we were in the house at that time, but it was at 8 o'clock that it actually started and it seemed that uh, the whole of the city was being bombed, there seemed to be bombing all around us. Uh, it was actually very near because uh, the National University is just below us and uh, the offences seemed to have started in that spot. Um, as well as further out in Soyapango and other districts. It seemed to be in more places at the one time and also it lasted uh, very much longer than other attacks. They've been very sporadic and or at um, a certain uh, building or, or group, but uh, this time it seemed to be all over the city. Uh, that first night on Saturday we stayed up all night because we didn't know whether it was going to come any nearer us or, or what was going to happen. Uh, um, and also we were very tense with the rumours that we'd heard that it was going to be within the populated areas, that they were going to be taken over by the FMLN and uh, that they were, it was going to be very dangerous and that we were to have food in and water supplies and candles and, and everything else. So we were kind of prepared for something that was going to last a long time. Some of the shops were, were opening for an hour or two in the morning uh, to, for the people to buy food or um, try to get uh, some food in. Uh, most people, I would say, had beans and rice in the house um, that would last them over a certain period of time. The supermarkets were closed because there was no electric light in most places and they were afraid of uh, pillaging. Uh, also, the circulation of traffic in the whole of the city uh, came to a standstill. All the petrol stations were closed. Nobody was... We were all forbidden under threat to buy petrol or circulate in the city. Uh, we went out... The first week, it wasn't too bad. Here in San Antonio, bad. It seemed to be more in the east side of the city. Uh, even though we could hear the bombing day and night, it never stopped. Uh, and we were very worried about our other, especially the Franciscans, who were out in that area. We didn't hear about them for nearly seven days. Uh, we were very, very worried. Uh, but there was nothing we could do about it. Uh, going out in the, into the streets here, we carried a white flag with us. Um, the place was very militarised, and 
There were a lot of helicopters circling overhead and machine gunning, especially the volcano here. They were bombing the volcano and machine gunning from the, from the helicopters down onto the volcano. Uh, there doesn't seem to be any defense mm -hmm. against the, that kind of uh, warfare. It was in the second week that we got it badly here in San Antonio, but it was when the Sheraton Hotel was attacked. It started here como as um, um, like a red herring. Uh, right. the, uh, the attention was put onto San Antonio bad. It was taken over by the, by the guerrillas and uh, they put barricades all around San Antonio. We awoke at five o'clock in the morning, a terrible, what we thought was bombing from the air, but we found out afterwards that it, they had blown up, that the guerrillas had blown up all the electric posts from here right into the Escalon, about two kilometers of electric posts all along the road and let them fall over the road so that no military vehicles could come in. But at the time, we didn't know that, and we thought the bombs were coming from the air. We were in this inner room where we are now, sitting on the floor, from 5 o'clock in the morning to nearly 5 o'clock at night. It were, we were here about three hours before we even ventured to go as far as the kitchen to make a cup of tea. We were so frightened. We put mattresses up against this window, as this is an inner room of the house. It only has the one window looking out. We put mattresses up there, and the fighting was in the street right next to us. We actually found a bullet. Uh, the remains of a bullet in the garden when we went out later. And the soldiers were up on the, the walls around the house shooting. So um, that was very, very heavy that day. And the next morning uh, at 6 o'clock... We, we, no, the, the, the fighting stopped about 5 o'clock, between 5 and half past 5, but then it was getting a bit dark that time. And uh, I opened the front door to look out. I couldn't see anybody. And the fighting started, the shooting started again, so I ran in. And that was the end of my courage for that day. But the next morning seemed deadly silent. There wasn't a sound in the place. We didn't sleep very well. We were kind of sleeping with our shoes on, ready right. to, run. <laughs> to run. And uh, uh, I went out about 6 o'clock because I was very worried about the Jesuits in El Despertar. Uh, the, there was no, nobody answering the phone. The phone was ringing, and I thought, well, they couldn't come to answer it because it's a good way from where the sleeping quarters are. Maybe they couldn't cross the yard to go to the phone because the fighting seemed to move from our area to theirs, yeah. and it was very heavy there. So I went out at 6 o'clock and saw military on the streets, and they told me that we couldn't cross the, the barricades until much later in the morning, that they weren't letting anybody through. But I could see people on the other side of the barricade, so I went back through our house and went through the back way to the other side of the barricade and eventually got to El Despertar. And there must have been very heavy fighting there because there was a whole, like a little hill of uh, a bullet, of yeah, bullets. a mound of bullets outside the door of El Despertar. But they were all right inside. The soldiers must have been billeted just outside the door and with the machine guns, you know, to just dropping all these things in a big heap. Um, People must have been terrified, though, yes. because people well, live in very open kind of houses without the security that you have here. But when we got up the next month, there was nobody around. Us. All our neighbours had gone. There wasn't one person in any house here. That's why it was so silent. They'd all fled, some of them only to the park. There's a park about a kilometre away, and most of them slept the night in the park. They were too afraid to stay in their houses. So it was three or four days later when they started coming back to their houses. Um, 
And it was during that week, of course, that uh, on the Thursday morning that we got the the news of the Jesuits uh, being killed. One of the Jesuits from El Despeta, one of the student Jesuits, rang me uh, to tell me, and he kept reading the list, and I, I just couldn't believe it because they were all except one. I knew them all personally, all those that worked in, in the UCA. And it just... I don't know, I just started to tremble like that and I didn't know what to do. The six Jesuits and their housekeeper and her daughter were dead. The streets were deserted. Communication with the outside world was difficult. But the news of the murders had been got out and as we heard at the beginning, Sister Jean and her colleagues went the following day to a mass for the dead. We passed down by the kitchen where the two girls, the woman and the girl, was killed and that was that was just terrible. It was it was just covered by the mm-hmm. intestines and blood of, of, of the ladies. They had just um, opened them up with machine gun firing and... Um, and it was an awful deathly silence about mm-hmm. the place. Nobody was talking, they were just looking and kind of not able to understand what had happened. Uh, we went to the Mass, and I don't know how Chima, the provincial, celebrated the Mass because it was so, it was so moving, and the Jesuits that were there, uh, those who had come, had come from other houses, been very, very frightened. And we had also, the Jesuits of Despeta, living in our house with us because um, after the fighting in San Antonio around Despeta, the, the provincial said that they wanted to stay in their house. So they came down to, you. down to us here. So we were kind of very frightened, <laughs> not only for ourselves, but for having those in as well with us. So anyway, the number of Jesuits had come to the Mass, about 20 of them had come. And this was the first mass that was celebrated for for the priests and the two women that were killed. It was very moving. Everybody was crying all the way through the mass. It was just, uh, I suppose, only the most nearest people, mm. friends, had heard about it and had were willing to come out mm. to the mass. So it was almost like family. It was all yes, there together. Yes. Mm-hmm. And. Um, and then after the Mass, I went around by the pastoral centre, which had just been built, and it was to help people like us. We could go there and borrow films, film strips, um, cassettes, books. The library was all open. It was all for pastoral work. And um, I went there and found that they had thrown a, kind of an incendiary bomb into the main office to try to burn the whole place down. Fortunately... The library was saved. It was terrible to see the destruction that was done. You know, needless kind of just just hate behind this kind of destruction. I also forgot to mention that when the when the heavy fighting was on in Zakamil, which is about just the next parish to us, all the people from Zakamil came here looking for shelter. So we had we decided to, to divide them between our hall and the hall in El Despertar. So we had about 50 people here and there about 100 or so in El Despertar. Children and everything? Children and, and fathers and mothers. They just fled, some of them with a change of clothes, some of them with nothing because the bombing was so heavy and so sudden. They just left their houses and ran. And it was a local doctor that saw them sitting at the side of the road. They didn't know where to go. Most of the Catholic colleges just filled up immediately and, and the churches. So we were fortunate that we had some food in, mm. sacks of food, 
and, and water because uh, when the offensive started here, we had no electricity for eight days. So that meant no water supply. <laughs> so I had to go down every day. Uh, even in this bad situation, I had to go down to the next parish and to, to get barrels filled with water and bring up every day so we'd have drinking water. And how do you look back on that as part of a lot of other experiences that you've been through in the country? It was probably, I think, probably one of the worst experiences that I've had um, since I've come and since the war has started here. We had many bad experiences in, in Gotera, but we, all, we never had bombing from the air or mortars being thrown in. The, the mostly street fighting with rifles, which is a very different thing. If you've got a wall between you, you mm -hmm. feel you're safe. This time, nobody felt safe. There was terror reigned here for, for a few weeks because of the shooting from the air by helicopters and the bombing and the throwing of mortars. It was really very heavy artillery, and, and that scared, scared us all. I wouldn't want to repeat it again, no, and I don't think I'll ever forget it either because the bodies of the guerrillas that were killed here too were burnt in the streets. It was a kind of a, an example, you know, this is what will happen to you if you if you collaborate, you know, this is, this is where you're going to end. We thought, you know, when the war started to be over in six months, like it would just be a revolution like Nicaragua, you know, and then stop, like, but um, it just hasn't happened that way. It was a long six months, in fact. The war was in its ninth year, and it has not yet ended today. But just two weeks before that November 89 offensive, Jesuit Jim McPolan had arrived in El Salvador from Ireland for the first time. In the early days of the offensive, his Jesuit community at El Despertar in the poor neighbourhood of San Antonio Bad escaped the worst of the aerial bombardment. However, it was later on the following week and especially the night of the 22nd of November, that Jim McPolan experienced his first taste of war in El Salvador. Here, actually, just as you look over there, the roof of the of our conference centre, of our parish centre, we used to stand up there at night and watch what was happening around us, and we saw these helicopters moving right into the poor areas and shooting rockets into them indiscriminately. And during that offensive... Uh, the amount of attacks on poor areas, which uh, didn't take into account the situation of the people at all, was it was a horrific sight to see every night and to see these these helicopters just circling over us and then moving moving into a, a, a very highly populated near uh, populated area near us was something really frightening and cruel to watch. So our turn, our turn here came a few days later, and early in the morning. We were wakened about four o'clock in the morning, and there was very heavy firing outside our house on both sides. And on one side, over there in that side where the where the main entrance is, outside there you had the military, and just outside here on the other side of the wall, the FMLN, and the fighting was very intense. So. 
Some people ran in from the parish. About 60 people came in to us looking for protection in the fighting. So uh, we had to protect ourselves over down there in the kitchen. It's a very small kitchen, kitchen. and 60 of us um, stayed in that kitchen. We had to, uh, we sat under tables and we barricaded the windows with big sacks of maize because it's the shrapnel that really kills you. So we had to protect them and then some mortars came in here just there in that spot. Near the tree. Yes, near the tree. There was a hole there. We've tried to restore the garden here a bit since then. So the fighting was coming here very near and the most frightening thing of all was the planes. There was there was one plane circling all the time in the afternoon and the bombs were coming near and near and here we had helped the civilian people, poor people in the kitchen and uh, people didn't say it but we all knew what each one of us were thinking because we hadn't a chance in that situation because here we are in the middle of a very highly populated poor area and bombing, you know, sending down bombs into an area like that is just... Uh, <laughs> You know, it's so cruel. How long were you like that for? How many days? Was it last? Oh a good while? no, it was that most intense mode. That yeah. was, that was the worst day. We had other days, all right, but which weren't as bad. I mean, subsequently there were a lot of attacks around here, uh, but this was the worst one with the bombers going straight for us. So the next day, the uh, the representative of the British ambassador came out here, and mm -hmm. message had been sent to California about our Paris centre here that we were in, in, in bad trouble and apparently a message then went from California down to Managua and across to Spain and somebody in the Spanish government contacted the government here and told them will you call off the bombing on El Despertar, our place and that's how we were how it was prevented because we would have been demolished only for that message You're convinced of that are you? Oh yeah, that's the truth, yeah so we got all these 60 people out the, that very morning because we felt it was too dangerous for them. But subsequently, we had to get out ourselves. I had to. I used to come here during the day to work in the parish, but I would sleep elsewhere because the military were searching this house. The military searched our house five times. And one night at midnight at 12 o'clock, they were looking for us. And when the military here look for you at, 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 at midnight, you know what it's about. You haven't a chance. So uh, I, I remember the feeling the next morning. It was the first time I ever had this feeling uh, in my whole life. It was, uh, yeah, aren't I lucky to be alive? Uh, just here, and what a nice feeling it is uh, to be alive. From just up there where we watched at night, we saw these helicopters massacre the civil, uh, the civil population. And it was never in this parish, there's some areas where better off people live, but never would those areas be attacked. So this is the reality of the situation. The only previous experience I had of this was in Northern Ireland and when I would go up there doing some work with various groups and see the military there. But this was totally different in the war. You, in order to protect yourself, and you have to be realistic, you can't get the people into any danger, you have to try to help them, and they help you how to look after mm. yourself. And here, for example, that day when there were attacks going on, uh, you, you're able to you know the difference between the machine guns, the very heavy machine guns of the military, and the machine guns of the, of the guerrillas. And 
the helicopters were the most dangerous of all. We would see them zooming down into these poor areas and you'd see the smoke and the fire of the rockets going out into the people. But here also there were attacks very near us as well. Uh, subsequently uh, during the offensive and after the offensive and these helicopters would would come down and the you you would make sure you tried to get protection of a wall or between two walls because the shooting of the helicopter heavy guns was completely indiscriminate very inaccurate and therefore the civilians would be in danger and the uh, these heavy guns and the helicopters would just spray a whole area uh, indiscriminately and they were you know they were very dangerous we had some mortar fire coming in here as well and you you had to be you, you had to be ready during these attacks to be able to to look after yourself, not to lose, not to get into a panic, but calculate and be cool, because in all of that time I found when I'd come here, with the people who have been through so much for 11 years, it doesn't help if you, if you show signs of fear, because you have to have quick thinking. For example, when we to protect ourselves that night, setting up the barricades, we had to calculate the dangers and the best methods of defending these women and children uh, we had with us and you know not to show you know not to show panic because your organization and your calculation of ways of protecting them and yourself will suffer and the life of war is something for me I found it when I came here first after 12 days the the offensive was launched and this was why and the Salvatores always joke me about that that I got a great welcome into the parish, that's what they say to me. While Jim McPolan awaited the bombs to fall on El Despertar, his six Jesuit colleagues, Julia Elba and her daughter Selina Ramos, were killed at their home in the university. The international outcry of an intensity not seen since the 1981 assassination of Archbishop Oscar Romero contributed to the ending of the November offensive, which began to peter out two years ago this week. The dialogue begun by the murdered Jesuit university rector, Ignacia Eucoria, has continued and today exhausted Salvadorians on both sides search together for peace. But for all of them, the rebel offensive and the government counter-attack of November 1989 remains etched in the mines for its sheer intensity. It is remembered throughout the world for the murder of the Jesuits. And it is remembered by the three religious featured on this programme, Peter O'Neill, Jean Ryan and Jim McPolan, for the universal truth that in war the poor suffer most. Uh, for me, it was an experience, an emotional experience of the most intense uh, fighting that I had actually experienced. But I, I think uh, looking over it again um, and looking back through so many years of so much violence, um, I, I, I feel that what, what's put out maybe in the newspapers or on television as statistics 
75,000 people uh, being killed. For me, I can see the actual faces. Um, here and now, I can see the faces, the face, for example, of Maria Magdalena, a human rights worker uh, who knew that she, she was uh, under threat, had received death threats, had even uh, had uh, two dead bodies planted outside her door, and she continued on to work for human rights, and eventually she was taken out of her, her house uh, and killed. I can see her face uh, in front of me now. I can see the face of Celso, the young catechist uh, who was killed uh, in the violence, of Andres, who was present when the National Guard uh, cut the head uh, off his wife and his sister and uh, other relations uh, belonging to him. Uh, I can see the faces uh, of the Jesuits in front of me now. So, um, uh, yes, it is. It's an emotional uh, experience uh, and it's an experience of death experienced personally in people who are friends, in people who are, who are well known to me and uh, in people whose friendship I certainly valued very much. We had a few families here and when they went back all they found was uh, twisted uh, tin roofing and the legs of the sewing machine. That was the only thing that hadn't burnt. Everything else had burnt the chairs, the tables. Their, their dishes, their plastic dishes, every, every single thing that they had, their clothes, everything was gone. Only what they brought with them was a, a, was a change of clothes and nothing else. So we had to, to um, see how we could uh, help these people. Unfortunately, I th it was Troker actually that sent us money straight away. Um, a lot of people here, even in our parish, were saying they were suffering from nerves, that they wanted sedatives, um, and just some kind of sedative mm -hmm. to, to cope with it, with it every day. And would it happen again next week kind of thing? You know, we never know whether it's going to happen again. But in all those difficult moments, there are very difficult moments all through the offensive and before it. But I was always trying to sort out, you know, I'd say to myself, well, listen, you're just crazy. What are you doing here? Mac, you're just mad. And I'd be brought back to the fundamental question of what the dickens am I doing in a place like this where all hell seems to broken up? And I'd always stop with one answer. And I didn't go any further. Well, I'm here because I want to try to help the poor. That's why I'm here. But then I see when I encounter the poor uh, that here, I find they're helping me more than I'm helping them. But anyway, they do say that it's a support for them uh, just to be here. And when I tell them about the groups in Ireland who, you know, who are concerned about them and we've got some help from Ireland, it is amazing how much they appreciate that. If there are people abroad uh, in a country like Ireland who are who are trying to make an impact with the authorities about what's happening here or sending any kind of aid to the poor. When the people here in the parish know that, it's amazing. I've seen tears in their eyes when I've told them in church that a group in Ireland now has, has helped us. And they're, they're put down so much that it's very hard for them to believe that somebody thinks positive of them.